after someone or something. In terms of a person, it would mean looking after their, both their physical and emotional well-being and protecting them from any sort of harm and keeping them safe. To me, care is very simple. It just means looking after somebody or something, looking after their physical and mental well-being. What do you think the word care means? Looking after people. Welcome to Transforming Care. Social workers can often be seen as the enemy to so many people in care or those impacted by the care system. I have spent many hours chasing down social workers, trying to find them to ensure they are providing enough support to the young people I am working with. I have spent hours in meetings with social workers who have tried to dodge responsibility, shift blame or work in the interests of themselves rather than the young people they are meant to be supporting. I've spoken to parents, foster families and young people about how social services have failed them repeatedly. I've spoken to social workers about how they are perceived, what's going wrong and why it seems that they fail young people so often. I've also had experiences of social workers who live and breathe the job, who spend their waking hours doing everything they can for the young people on their caseload. I know social workers who have saved lives, believed in young people when they didn't believe in themselves, and poured everything they have into caring for those who might not have had anyone in their life care about them before. I understand the strain social workers are under, and I understand that they are mostly trying their best in an extremely difficult situation. But it pains me to say that the best social workers out there aren't being supported in what they do and they are leaving the profession. The best social workers I know have had to fight the system over and over again. Whether they know a move is not right for a child but they have to do it anyway because it saves the local authority money or whether they are given more and more young people to work with when they already have too much on their plate. It happens time and time again that the best social workers are driven out of the profession because they are not being valued. There is something broken in this system and social workers are the ones to deliver the system to the young people who need as much love and support as anyone and who are simply not getting it. Look, it comes with the territory that they have had to make not just difficult but often impossible decisions. They are going to have people disagree with them, fight them, hate them even. It's not an easy job even when you have all the support, backing and resources available. And we are a long, long way from that. In the conditions that social workers have to operate, there is almost no way they can do their job effectively and properly. However, there is something even deeper than just a lack of resources, and it is about what it means to be a social worker in the first place. What are social services meant to be doing? How are they meant to be doing it? Why are there more and more young people coming into care when the care system has less and less resources to work with them?
social workers are often the enemies of so many in the system. But why is that? In this episode, we discuss the role of social work with Dr. Kate Morris. In her years as a social worker and as a lecturer at Sheffield University, she has seen the work change immensely, and she talks about some of this with us here. She also talks about social work in the wider context of society, what's changed and how it's changed in the last 30 to 40 years. It was a pleasure speaking with her, and she is a compassionate and intelligent person who has a lot of interesting perspectives on what is going wrong, and more importantly, how we can change it for the better, for the next generation of young people who are in care, and for those in care right now. Please enjoy the interview with Kate Morris. Yeah, welcome. Uh, Thanks so much for agreeing to this interview, first of all. Professor Kate Morris. <laughs> Hello, Kate. Hi. Um, so, I guess my first question would be, um, what do you do? And, um, yeah, how does it tie in with care leavers? Okay. So, um, when I uh, first started work, I was, became a social worker, and I spent a number of years working with young people. And then I moved into child protection. Uh, Then I moved into social work education. And these days I'm a professor of social work. And my research focuses on family involvement in care and protection. Family support, including in that support for young people. And inequalities, really, and how inequalities are riddled through our uh, approach to children and how inequalities is such a driving force in what happens for children and their families. Um, How long have you been in this profession and what made you want to get started? So I uh, trained as a social worker 30 years ago and so I've seen a a lot of change, a lot of change in social work over that time. Uh, When I first trained as a social worker, we worked as uh, what were called generic patch teams. So that meant you were based in the community you provided the service to. You had no limits in terms of age. So you worked with young people, children, older people, families. And you were kind of, your door was open and you were known to the community. And from that, I've seen a shift to social workers who hot desk in remote offices, uh, traveling in to a community and traveling back out, but often not having the time to know that community properly. Um, I think we've become a, uh, just because of austerity, because of cuts, because of the way that our profession is being driven and shaped, we've become a far more interventionist profession. And I think, well, I know from my research that families and communities are quite often scared of social workers. They're not the first people they would go to if they needed help, which is kind of sad when you think social work should be about help and support. And most families that I research with would say, "Mm, no, talking to a social worker was not my first choice. It wouldn't be on top of my list of things to do. 
So I think we've seen a shift and a change in the demise of a lot of support services because of austerity has made that even harder because quite often people only get a social worker when they're in complete crisis. There's no run up to that. So actually for social workers, they're often only seeing families you know, when things are at their most difficult. So it's very hard sometimes I think for social workers to see family strengths as well as for families to see that social workers might be helpful. So we've kind of ended up with a bit of an unhelpful, almost toxic relationship between uh, families, communities, children's services. And that's nobody's intention that it should be like that. It's a product of all sorts of external forces. And um, is this what helps you get started in this profession then? So I got started that. in this profession because um, I, I'm, I'm essentially a profoundly hopeful person, mm -hmm. really like people. Uh, my first job was uh, working with young women. I was an outreach worker, working with young women who were very kind of disaffected, on the streets, quite vulnerable. Um, and I just, from the minute I started working really, I don't think I've ever regretted uh, the work that, the opportunities that social work gives you to work with people in a really meaningful way. It is the most fantastic job. So uh, I'm, I'm most, I'm sure, almost all social workers go into it wanting to make, sincerely, wanting to make a difference for children, for families, for communities. Um, so I think I've felt the last decade or so enormously sad that as a profession, uh, we've kind of uh, been really restricted in what we can do. And we're quite often now experienced as almost policing families instead of supporting families. And that includes not just birth families, but foster families. You know, um, yeah, I think something that struck me about what you were just talking about is the kind of difference between what social work means nowadays as to what it did when you maybe first got started in the career. And certainly my perception, or my experience of people's perception of social workers, um, young people in care, young people on the edge of care, families, birth families, is that they're, yeah, is that they're not just kind of scared of them, but they also kind of can, not all, but like can like hate them, can be really angry at them, mm -hmm and um, see them to be kind of the people who take take their kids away Absolutely. or take you know take yeah. take them yeah. take them away from their parents right and i'm kind of wondering when did that change it did it change has it not always been like that and do you think the state has the authority and at what point does the state have the authority to intervene I don't ever have rose-tinted glasses about what went before. Mm. Um, so we need to be awfully careful that we don't say everything was just fantastic 20, 30 years ago, and it's all terrible now. Um, why did things change? I think there's a, a, a very uh, top-level conversation. So without drilling into loads of detail as a top-level conversation about what is the role of social work in our society today and what is the kind of settlement between 
the state and the family and what role does social work play in that? And so there will always be, for some children, a situation that means they can't live with their families. My starting point is that uh, for most children that isn't the case. For most children with the right help, support, they can grow up with their families, with their networks, with their communities. Because when you remove a child, you don't just remove them from their birth family, you remove them from all that sits around that. So I would like to hope that it's rare that we have to intervene in that way. But when we do so, we should be fully transparent in that process. And it should be where the best practice kicks in, where the best respect for rights kicks in, because the point at which the state intervenes that profoundly in family life should be the point at which we do everything we can to do that well, respectfully, appropriately. It shouldn't be the point of where everything goes wrong. It should be the point where there's outstanding practice to do it in a way that allows a child to maintain connections, if that's possible, that um, helps the family come to some kind of resolution about what's happened, that allows the family that's going to go on and care for the child to feel valued and supported, and at the moment, we have such a siloed and fragmented service that children are almost passed like parcels between these different bits of the service. We did the care review. I sat on the National Care Review. You know, and young people talk so much about services breaking instead of maintaining relationships. And that's not the space we should be in or we should want to be in, really. Um, thank you, Kate. Well said. Um, so we were just talking before we started recording about our ideal world, well, my <laughs> ideal world, and um, I was just having to think about, do you think that a solution, I don't know whether this can be funded or whether um, some social workers can do this as part of their training or can volunteer to do this, but every time, so each family, maybe when the child is born or when they're growing up, before these problems start arising, maybe they should be assigned a social worker that's there to just foresee everything, make sure that the parent is doing a good job, make sure that the child is happy and safe, even if there aren't any issues, just so that we can prevent that from happening, prevent mm. all these problems from escalating and then they have to intervene. Do you think that's quite a good idea? I think you're absolutely right to say, um, can we think differently about the way we help families? You know, when I had my kids, it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. In some ways it's great, in some ways it's painful, but it's not straightforward experience. And asking for help is quite a hard thing to do sometimes, particularly when you feel you're not coping. And yet we've created a situation where folks are scared to ask for help. Now, I'm not sure Social workers are the right profession to do that uh, early help. Because I think, whilst ever we have the power to remove children, some families are going to be wary of us. Mm -hmm. However, we could be part of a bigger solution, really. I think we should help communities build community services that respond to the community they know and understand. 
so that it's not someone coming in and doing it, but that you actually can skill and mobilise the community to help the families that are struggling. Because I think there's loads of expertise and knowledge in communities. You've got to do some stuff about um, basic inequalities. For communities to be able to help each other, there's got to be sufficient income. Mm -hmm. There's got to be sufficient resources. There's got to be proper physical environments. And the other thing I'd say is that I really don't like, you'll hear a, uh, early intervention. I don't think we should use words like intervention. I think we should just say to people, what help would you like? Yeah. Really simple, really straightforward. Yeah. What would you like? What would help? Yeah, I, I agree with that in terms of the, the intervention. Um, it kind of implies blame, mm. you know, I think. Um, but I would like to tr uh, talk a little bit about that, um, that notion of reducing inequality. Um, and what that would look like, because I'm currently working on on kind of public health and prevention uh, around mental health and serious youth violence, and to me it seems like the the core, you know, root causes of a lot of these things, whether that is domestic violence, um, young people being taken into care, serious youth violence, kind of like stabbings, and like a, a host of other really difficult and challenging um, things that people go through um, that result in, in poor mental health are down to the kind of fundamental inability for communities to res be resourced and resource themselves and be able to like develop in ways where people aren't under constant pressure. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of wondering whether you could discuss a little bit about how inequality impacts young uh, people, families, and people going into care, and maybe what could be done if there were, if, if there are any things that you thought could be done that that would alleviate some of that stress. Mm. So, you know, our research, uh, the Child Welfare Inequalities Project, um, showed that in some areas of the UK, you are maybe 12 times more likely to come into care if you are in a deprived area than if you're in an affluent area. Now, I genuinely do not believe that poor parents love their children less than affluent parents, and that's why more poor parents' children come into care. I just, there's no evidence to support that at all. So the driver for that uh, unequal chance of coming into care has got to be uh, patterns of deprivation children's social and economic circumstances are a key fact, risk factor for them coming into the care system. And yet, our child protection system isn't about social and economic circumstances of children. It's about individual parents, what they individually do with their children, and it's focused on risk. But if we know the pattern, if we know your chances of coming to care are so connected to where you were born, your social and economic circumstances, wouldn't it make sense if we want to make things better for children and families that we think about their social and economic circumstances? We know from studies in America, if you raise income for families, you reduce the level of child abuse and neglect. We know poverty is such a stress and a strain for families and for communities. 
poor communities have very limited resources in terms of, I don't know, after school, preschool, nursery help, decent playground, whatever it might be. And poor families, they are living with a precarious, a kind of worry, a level of stress. So the effects of poverty are direct and indirect, really. They affect how you behave, but they also affect if you can afford to give your child lunch, if you, can, if you have to make a choice about um, spending the bus fare to go to the meeting with social services or yourself having lunch. You know, it comes down to those, really. So I think we need to accept that link, and I think some nations in the UK do that more readily, more easily than others. Scotland has really started to think about this. So we know uh, our research has informed some areas of Scotland, and they now, if you go through the duty system uh, of a children's services team, so if there's a referral in, you, you automatically get an income maximisation service. So straight away, somebody's checking that you've got all the benefits you're entitled to, that you, you know, your housing, all those things. Now that's not going to, that's not a silver bullet, that's not a magic wand. But for a lot of families, that might just slightly increase the income, slightly take the pressure down. So there's some short-term things like that we can do. We also must make sure that what we do as a service doesn't shame families further because poverty is really shaming people. Uh, you know, it's stigma. It's it's it, it affects. It gets under your skin being poor. And social services, children's services, need to take a good, careful look at their everyday practices, everyday arrangements, and make sure they're not making it harder rather than easier for families. And we, when we did our research, we saw some examples of um, families not being able to be reimbursed for travel without filling in loads of forms and waiting a couple of weeks. Families can't afford to do that. Because the five or ten pounds they've spent, they actually needed for that evening. They can't wait a fortnight and fill in forms. We saw um, assessments of children that didn't have a description of their social and economic circumstances. So we didn't know whether they were in social housing, whether there were rent arrears, whether the parents were working, not working. All these things have an effect on children's well-being. So there's some short-term uh, things we can do, and then there's longer-term things about uh, how we invest in communities and, and really working, co-producing with families, with communities, what that help looks like. I was a fan of Sure Start. I liked those notions of community centres that families could just go to when they needed help. I'm not saying let's reinvent Sure Start, but I think some of those community help uh, centres matter. And then the other thing I want to say is what we quite often don't understand, and families in our research have talked a lot about, is when children come into care, we lift them out of poverty. Because quite often the foster home has more money than their birth family. And we have a lot of birth families saying, if I could have had the money that the foster family had, maybe I could have been a different parent. And that's a really hard thing for families. So we have to be so, so sure that when we take children away from their families, when a child says to us, 
10, 20, 30 years on, did you do everything you could to make it possible for me to stay with my family? We can say hand on our hearts, yes we did. That doesn't mean that there aren't some children who absolutely cannot live with their families and there we must be able to say hand on our hearts we did everything we could to keep you safe. So Breesh Featherstone, I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to Breesh, um, she's really interesting. Uh, she's in Huddersfield so if you've got a chance, I write a lot of what I've written has been with Breesh. She's been doing some really interesting work thinking about how you can start to work with communities and how you can really think very differently about children's services. Um, and it, that, that work is interesting. Um, and then you've got, uh, you know, things like family group conferences that have been developed as a way of involving families in making a plan for children. So I do think there's some green shoots of thinking differently. Um, but we have a long way to go, don't we? I mean, you, you will be bumping into this, you know, you will, you will open your own personal experience. What your dad had, you know, we have a long way to go to make the care system fit for purpose, don't we? You know? Yeah, there's a couple things that I was wanting to pick up on. And, and actually, going back to your point, Joy, I think it is, it, which is an incredible idea, is like, what, um, why aren't we kind of engaging with families when their children are young and, and, and fostering the community kind of development that could could happen from from the, mm. like day the yeah. child don't is wait, born, you know. Saying, don't wait till it goes terribly wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other thing is like, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your perspective on the investment of what I think they are now calling the care market. Um, and the, the kind of prevalence uh, of private care homes and, and yeah, uh, kind of independent fostering agencies that, charities or not, might be run by private companies and, and whether you had a perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I have a... <laughs> very clear about this. Has no place. Yeah. Has no place. Um, Cathy Evans, who does Children First, again, somebody that you might want to talk to. She's really interested. She always says, follow the money. We need to understand what is going on in our sector. These companies are making vast amounts of money. Who is actually making that money? Where is it going? We have venture capitalists, I think, in this space now. And if you think about accountability in those situations, I genuinely do not understand how a young person who might be having a dreadful time in a privately run care home, how their voice will be heard. You know, if we, if we do this properly, those young people should, uh, there should be a, a democratic accountability right through to your elected local councillor who should be in that mix. You know, you should, uh, uh, at this rate, we're going to have such fractured relationships that it's almost impossible for young people's voices to be heard. So I see no value whatsoever. I think we, we must accept very seriously as a state our responsibility to produce world-class care for young people. Mm. Not 
commission it out, not contract it. So, out. I mean, I guess the question there is, would do, uh, would the state do a good job of it? Um, you know, if it's coming from centralised places, uh, centralised government, or if it's coming from local authorities, the standards of their care haven't been all that, you know, from historically. And if we were to look at a model, you mentioned the word co-production, if we were to look at a model where young people were actually involved in the decisions that were made, like actually involved in, t- in terms of... Not tokenistic of, attender meeting. No. But actually involved. Like yeah. they made the decisions about what was done with them, what where they went, what kind of care they provided and what their home looked like and everything. And actually to the point of putting them in power in the local council. So making policy decisions. Kids, you should go into care if. You should, if you are in care, you should get X, you know? Like, I'm trying to think, you know, it's a, it's a huge a- ambitious thing, but I'm trying to think, right, what would that look like? Who would be able to run that? Would central government be able to relinquish that power? Like, would it be possible? So I think nobody's done a good job. So I don't think the history of state-run care services is great. It's not. I don't think the history of privately-run care is good either. So that's suggesting we haven't found a model that works. So we shouldn't just keep doing what we're doing more of. We should stop and have a radical rethink. Statistics are, uh, I think it's statistics of people with the tears washed away. question is what have you found like what has been the pattern or correlation that they have said that could help improve the care system so a lot of the young people who talk to things like the care inquiry who've taken part in some of the research we've done there is something about having your voice heard so so important certainly a lot of them talked about this breaking of relationships kind of really key relationships in their lives were just broken by the system. They were just moved. They lost ties with people that were so important. All those relationships that you build up that are so important to you and you are so vulnerable when you're in the care system. Somebody can literally just choose to move you and that's gone. So they talked a lot about that. Um, I think they talked about Certainly young people I've worked with have talked about, I don't want to generalise too much, sometimes there's an understanding that some decisions have to be made that they may not agree with. 
but they still want to know what's gone on. They want to understand why that decision's been made, and they want to say in what happens next. Quite often decisions are made over there, and young people feel they've got no voice, no say in it at all. I think the other thing I'd say is that we, we shouldn't be, uh, we need to be careful here that um, young people are quite traumatized sometimes by the time they enter the care system. And so they also have a right to some very careful long-term therapeutic help to deal with that trauma. What they shouldn't have is the experience of care is even further traumatic. So they come in having maybe survived some very difficult and awful experiences, and then our care system makes it worse. How can that be right? I mean, it's just morally wrong, really. So I think it is about voice. I think it's about co-designing. I think it's about absolute honesty and transparency. So no young person feels lied to in this process. Um, and I think we don't use their expertise enough. Nobody knows better what it feels like than the person who's lived through it. And their expertise should be, you know, centre, foreground and centre in what we do next. Oh, thank you for that, Kay. I absolutely agree with sometimes, you know, social the social system can really make the young people feel disempowered. Definitely. And a lot of the times, you know, while I was trying to deal with my social worker, getting them to understand me, I had to like bring in a third party, bring in an advocate, yeah. you know, from another organization or company yeah. just so that they could hear me. Because yeah. they just don't always take the young people seriously. Definitely. And it's a big problem that needs to be addressed. Because at the moment we view everything, I call it a deficit model, so we view everything from, through the lens of the problem. What we rarely do with children and people and their families is think actually there's a huge amount of expertise here. The opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer support, for families who've navigated their way through the system to help another family navigate their way through. You know, all these opportunities to form uh, networks that support and help are so often denied because everybody, I think, just takes a very when we have a, well, we talk about it in our book as a risk-saturated system. Everybody's preoccupied by risk and problems, not possibilities and potential. Right. And this is a problem because the more you focus on, you know, all the risk and this and that, it's honing on that negativity rather than putting it into empowerment and exactly. optimism. You have to put that in your manifesto for <laughs> the new world. <laughs> <laughs> Um, social services can be really, yeah, I agree. Social services can be really traumatizing. Sorry, can I say one more thing? Because that's the yeah. thing I really feel like. I kind of feel this is really crude and not very sophisticated. <laughs> when I think about care, and when we talk about care, whether that's children's homes, foster homes, kinship care, whatever it is, I think if it sits, I'm, I'm not naive about local government and I'm not certainly not naive about central government, but if it sits within a system where people have been elected, where people have been properly appointed, whatever, at least I know what's going on. One of my biggest fears at the moment with the privatisation of care is that I don't know what right these companies have to be in young people's lives. Do they have a track record of ethical practice? Do they... I just don't have any sense. Mm. I feel like they're just in it for the money. I feel like there's a lot of money being made in this. It's disgusting. 
how much oh, money there is. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 absolutely like one of the worst um, indictments of our society. I think for it, making money out of the most vulnerable in society. It 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 is sickening, and it and it is kind of like um, it's shame. Like they are shameless about it. You know, uh, is. I think um, there was a merger recently, maybe was a group called CareTech. And it just sounds like a Silicon Valley-like thing. And it just, like, even the name makes me feel, like, just, it just like, rings of, like, faceless corporations that, like, basically have no place apart from maybe in a sci-fi novel. People stop, just don't understand that actually this is people's real lives that they're bandying around. So Robin Sen, who's based here, have a look at his Twitter feed. He's doing this privatisation of social services. He's got a seminar that I'm chairing coming up, and he's trying to shine a light on some of these dark corners. So have a look at his mm. Twitter feed. They've tried to map who's connected to who in terms of making the money and where the money's going. And it's really important work because we have got to, as a sector, get hold of this because people are um, making huge amounts of money. And it's just like, it makes me so sad that we can't just invest in the communities that make up this, these, you know, the UK and invest in the poorest communities because those communities end up becoming alienated and alienated. Completely. So if you think in the poorest areas of our country, social workers are probably visiting every third or fourth family if you think that inequality means you know, much more likely to be involved in social work. At what point will we start to think, actually, a load of individual home visits aren't the answer here? If all these families in this area have got an individual social worker working with them individually, there might be some common ground here that's about trying to survive in a community that's been hollowed out in terms of opportunity, employment, investment, all those things. So we've got to switch the conversation, I think. Bring some hope, some positivity to it. I, I just wanted to say that that's a really... I've never heard it put like that in terms of... I, I don't think I was... I was aware, but I'd never kind of thought about how the individual parenting is the thing that is analysed and when um, and, and then determines whether the child will go into care. And when someone is being abusive, someone that, like... That's understandable, but when like you are only identifying abuse from those neighbourhoods, or the or the the impossibility for those parents to be able to raise their children is coming up time and time again in those neighbourhoods. How like like you say, it's it's it it stops being about the individual parenting or the individual's capability to parent. It's about something else. Um, my question, Kate, is where have you seen, like, you know, the care system or a system that is actually effectively helping young people that are in care? Where have you seen that and how can we implement that within the care system here in the UK? So I loved the, have you seen the Scottish Care Review that's just come out? I thought that was really nice example of thinking differently, really seriously thinking differently. You know, it just had a lot of talk about love and hope in it and all those things. So I, I'm kind of hopeful maybe Scotland's 
going to start to do it differently and we could all learn from what Scotland's trying to do. Um, they're talking about a new care inquiry here, aren't they? I, I worry about that. I'm not confident that the English government will do the job that Scotland's done. Um, so maybe just like talk a little bit about if you, what you know of the Scottish yeah. Care Review, if that's right. I've only just read it, it's only recently come out. My understanding is that it was, uh, it was a real genuine attempt to co-develop it with young people in the care system, to take seriously what they'd experienced, to think radically and differently about it. So it, it isn't about how you tweak in the system. It isn't about just a bit of a change here and a bit of a change there. It's actually saying, what do we want for young people in care? What is the basic kind of pillars that they should have the right to have? And then we'll build on that, rather than where we seem to always start here, which is, what can we afford to deliver? Uh, we always see young people in care as a problem as well. So we never see that actually there is a fantastic wealth of potential in our care system. We always see it as containment, don't we, and problems. And so I, I just think there's a, it, it's a cultural shift. It's a complete change. Now, I don't know enough about where it's done well, and isn't that sad that I can't think of excellent examples. The other thing you have to be really careful about, I think, in all this is that there are, I do believe this, there are social workers, foster carers, residential care workers in the mix who genuinely want to do the best for young people in care. And it's easy for them to get kind of hidden in all the awful stuff that happens. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so often I would talk to young people who could remember one person who really tried really tried to make a difference for them. And we ought to have a look at what that looks like, you know, who was that? The other thing I'd say, and again, this is not my area, and why I'd also talked to Breege. Breege did the National Adoption Inquiry, and we have to understand how odd we are as a nation, that adoption is a massive driver in our children's services. For most countries, they would just be appalled at the number of children we're adopting. Um, I think in New Zealand they did something like five adoptions, didn't they, last year? We did 4,000 or something. I mean, it's massive. I can't remember, that data's not yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. But Breege did the work on the influence of adoption on the way we're approaching our care of young people and our work with families. It's a really interesting conversation. I'd have a conversation with her about that because uh, she, she really gets to the nub of... of uh, the fact we seem to be thinking we rescue children and the answer is adoption. Mm. Leaving behind a whole set of harm and hurt and pain and heartache for everyone, you know. Um, there's a lot to, you know, there's, uh, like you say, there's a lot to do and there's a lot, to, there's a lot to be hopeful for because I think what I have mm. noticed since um, starting this project and kind of talking to people from different parts of the sector and like who you know don't know each other different fields entirely or like is that there is a strong loving care experience community out there that that are 
passionate about change, passionate about like improving mm. the system that aren't aren't being listened to by but I the think government. They've got the potential to drive the change. You see, they had the big care conference, didn't they? Was it last year? Yeah. Um, entirely led, developed, wasn't it, by young people and care. Even you know quite mature care leavers. Yeah, shouts to Ian Dickinson. Yeah, that's it. He's active on Twitter. <laughs> so Big there's man. that happening, and I think that will have, you know, keep going. Lemcc people like that that are really trying to, uh, like you, <laughs> you know, who are getting involved in doing this. You're going to you're going to drive some change, and um, and that's so so important because your voices. Are, are going to be the change makers, I think, in this. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for that compliment, <laughs> Kate. And um, yeah, from like this interview and some of the under, um, some of the other interviews that we've done, it seems that what is really needed is isn't really like you know a bigger budget or more money thrown in. It's really just more love, more empathy, and more community, and that will definitely be the driving force to a better care system. I think so. The only thing I'd add to that is that people who say money doesn't matter are usually those that have it. And money does matter for a lot of families. So I think you're absolutely right about love and hope. And I think what happens for a lot of families, for young people, and I mean by families, foster families, birth families, all the families, is that actually being able to have love, you know, being able to be loving and to have hope is just that bit easier when you're not worried about money. So I do think we have to get hold of inequality, but I think you're absolutely right about love and hope. So put the two bits together, put that, we need that in the manifesto as well. And I think, I think part of that is like, actually, you don't need to spend uh, like loads of money because really what 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 is happening at the moment is that local authorities are having to pay exactly eight grand a week for someone to be sent exactly. to a secure unit there are look there are um you know contracts being sold to companies who can provide x kind of care at the cheapest so-called cheapest cost um and then they are failing young people and then they are criminalizing young people they are excluding young people and those young people are being inserted into the criminal justice system and oftentimes that's the point you're making joy isn't yeah. it which is that actually with consistent love and hope you don't ever let those young people go exactly. but in this fractured privatized yes. broken system young people don't they just drop through, 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 and nobody feels that love, hope, and responsibility for them, and that is a real indictment of our society, isn't it? And they're alone as well because because of those broken relationships, as you mm. said before, and like you said, the those people who are social workers, who are staff in residential children's homes and foster carers, who are like working their hardest. To do that, to do the best they can because they care, are being oh, like for social workers being overworked and you know underpaid. We're all caught like hamsters in a wheel, aren't we? Yeah. 
the, the system doesn't work. We have to do it differently. We have to do it differently. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that means tackling poverty uh, and inequality and valuing, like, resourcing our communities. Thank you so much for all of that <laughs> knowledge and insight, Kate. Um, what would you like to see going forward? What is some of the change you'd like to see? Um, I would like to see more and more young people like you <laughs> achieving their potential and changing the world and using that experience wisely like you're doing now. Um, I, uh, you know, we, on a top level, we've got, we have to address inequality. We just have to. I don't think this government's going to, so I think it's a dream rather than a reality, isn't it? But we can't go on expecting people to bring up children in the conditions that they're currently having to do. And then on a local level, we've got to start to have, I think, some really imaginative conversations, which you're trying to provoke, that says, OK, if, it, if we're going to do it differently, what would it look like? Can we take the money that we are currently channeling into stuff that doesn't work? How do we switch it across? How do we invest it in families, communities, in young people? What would, uh, if young people can't live with their families, and if young people have been really, really traumatized by life experiences, what would good quality care for them look like? Do we actually even know anymore? I don't, I don't know if we have those conversations. So I think it's about, fueled by some love and hope, some conversations about doing it differently. And respect, a bit of respect in there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lack of respect riddled through the system. Yes, definitely. Thank you for that excellent answer, Kate. Oh, thank, <laughs> you. thank you. It's been such a pleasure to do this and to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Transforming Care. Transforming Care is an autonomous media production hosted by myself, Jake Blake and Joy Milani. You can find us at autonomousmedia.org, on Twitter at media underscore autonomy, and on Instagram at autonomous underscore media underscore London underscore. They're long, I know. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next week.